the only thing I'm going to say this morning is I'm going to not echo go Colts. Seahawks, right? Seahawks, Patriots. My my wife is from New England. Uh, you know, grew up on the East Coast, and she is like, man, it's like the perfect storm. If it's like you know the Patriots, this is not what I was going to say, by the way. If it's like the Patriots and and Green and, and Green Bay, I, we've got to find a way to go to the Super Bowl. I'm like. Like, we can afford that. Apparently, she has a friend who has a friend who works for somebody who, one of the networks, who, if I am not here Super Bowl Sunday, if Jane shows up and he's preaching, (laughs) I'm going to be like, I don't care. Whatever. She'll be like, woo, like green paint on her face. Ah!" And I'll be like going, I'm with the crazy one. Usually, I'm the crazy one, though. Anyway, that's nothing to do with it. So, uh, I was just going to echo Sarah, not to go Colts, but uh, the, the uh, all-church business meeting. Uh, every time, anybody see Guardians of the Galaxy? All right, four times. So, you're no one to find. So, when, whenever I see the hashtag that we do, the planting roots, all I see is like it's stopping at the end of the says planting groots. That's all I see. I'm like, Groot. we are a group. That, that's what I see. Uh, so uh, Planning Roots has been going really well. We'll give you the update in that uh, next week. Uh, if you have you know, been doing that, thank you so much for being very faithful to your commitments in Planting Roots. Uh, I, I think we're a little bit over like 10% of the whole three-year commitment at this point. And so you guys, yeah, you guys have been doing really, really well. Keep going. Let's see if we can beat it. That'd be great. It'd be awesome. <laughs> so uh, next Sunday at 5 p.m. If you guys want, you know, come and you can ask us any questions as well. You know, open book until we get bored of you. And we're like done. Cut you off. Whatever. Uh, if you, if you are new, uh, welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone. You don't have to shut it off. Uh, what you do is you uh, download an app. It's called YouVersion. Click on Live in YouVersion, and you will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and all that goes along with today's message right there. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who live in and understand more of your steadfast love. That you are a father who has sought out his lost and broken and bleeding children. And you have called us home. And I ask that we would begin to live in the understanding of that love and it would change us entirely in how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So this is the fourth of a fifth week on a series we're calling The Prodigal God. Uh, it's an in-depth look at the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Uh, we use the term prodigal God because the parable is really about the reckless love of God our Father. And secondly, it's a great title of a book by a guy named Tim Keller that we recommend you all pick up and read during the series. It's a small, thin little book, a lot of great wisdom in it though. And so we invite you guys to pick it up and read that. Now the parables that Jesus told were stories that he used to teach about God's character and who God was. A person's character lets you know certain things about them because characters are really an account of the qualities of a person or a thing. You know this because you've watched TV or you've talked to your friends or you've seen the news or you looked at political officials. That character in itself can be good or character can be bad. 
we usually judge character based upon what a person does, uh, how they live, how they treat others, but mostly we judge it on how they treat us because we are very, very selfish and we think everything comes down to being about us. Now, if I say some names to you, you will instantly be able to judge some things and have an opinion about their character. Ready? Let's try. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you a couple names. Ready? Seriously, you guys used to be the most active service. Like, woo! I don't know what happened, but you guys are like dead half the time now. Yes! First service, the 815ers are like, yeah, let's go. You guys are like, what? What am I doing here? I thought this was a football game. What's going on? Okay, I'll give you some names, okay? Justin Bieber. That's what first service did. They go, yeah, okay, whatever. Mother Teresa. Uh, somebody did that to you. Ah, uh, okay, all right. Osama bin Laden. Ooh, wow. Oprah. <laughs> now, you all have an opinion, you know, based because you've seen things about them, but you never actually met them. You're all like the older brother. You're welcome. There you go. You're, you're just terribly good. You're all judgmental. But see, character matters. Character matters. Don't let anyone ever tell you different. It matters what you do, how you live, who you love, how you love. And the parables that Jesus told were ways to help people understand the character of who God is in his person. Now, parables are told, uh, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, so they're told from a Jewish perspective. They're written down in Greek. We get them translated into English. So there's probably sometimes a little confusion that can take place in them. It's like, I used to know these two Hispanic ladies that used to clean this church that I worked at. Great, wonderful ladies. They're just the, the coolest ladies in the world. And one day I'm trying to explain to them that something was not trash. And so I said, no basura. No basura. And they go, oh, okay. Next thing I know, everything in my office is in the dumpster. Because they thought I meant this is all trash. I don't want any trash in here. It's all in the translation and the interpretation, right? And then I'm, and I don't want to be mean and be like, ah, so I have to carry it all back to my office. And it all smells like day-old lettuce. So it's horrible. How, how we translate and understand Jesus' words will translate into character for us. Like, what should a Christian life look like? If you ask a hundred people, what should a Christian life look like, you're going to get 75 different answers. And they're going to be like from the bizarre to the very theological to the very confused. And so Jesus told us parables to help us first understand God and who he is and what that translates into us and our character being. So open to Luke chapter 15. It's on page 568 in the Element Bible, if you're interested. Uh, Brad Young wrote this book called The Parables of Jesus. And in that book, he tries to help us understand more and more the Jewishness, uh, the perspective of that in Jesus' parables. And he says that many times we miss the thrust of parables, even when it's staring us right in the face, like the parable of the prodigal son. Because even our title for it is kind of misleading. Here's how it starts. Luke 15, verse 11. This is what Jesus says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. So who's the parable about? The man. There is a man who had two sons. The man's the main character, not the sons. Now, the sons, as we, as we talked about the last two weeks, represent us. So who do we like to look at and focus on? Us, because we're all selfish and horrible. This is a story about a man who had two boneheaded, knuckleheaded kids. That's the story. That's how it starts. And so, but, and then you look at the Father, and it is the deep, unceasing, unfailing, soul-searching love of the Father that's portrayed in the story. 
And it shows that God is like this father. God is this father. And though his children make stupid mistakes, he loves them. He paves a way for his children to be and come home. The, the pro- this story is the gospel in a nutshell. It's a beautiful story. In the last two weeks, we've looked at the younger son. We've looked at the older son. But today, we're going to go through the same verses again. But I want you to watch for and look for the father. We're going to have a totally different perspective on this. Look for the father. What are you looking for? Making sure, because you guys don't pay attention at the time. Okay, so there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, for the people hearing this story, this is a slice of real life for them. These kind of things would happen every once in a while. And the key image for people in this day would be the father, and how is he going to react? What's he going to do? Because his younger son essentially asked him to die. And the audience Jesus is speaking to, again, as we talked about last week, is religious leaders who resemble the older brother and then all these sinners who represent like the younger brother in the story. The religious leaders thought they had it all together. The sinners were the ones who knew they were sinners and they encountered Jesus and they actually want to be around him. And Jesus, in communicating the story the way that he does, shows a deep understanding of what moves and motivates people in their heart and what captivates them. These first two lines that Jesus starts with to this culture would have set up the idea that God has unlimited compassion and every person has great need. And by the end, he's going to call everybody to make a decision. That decision is, are you going to enter into the joy? Are you going to be excited? Are you going to go to the, you want to be at the party of these lost ones who come home? And he does this by dealing with interpersonal relationships in a family circle. The love of the father, but also the relationship between these two brothers. There's huge family dynamics going on here. Brad Young says, neither brother understands his father's love, and neither brother possesses love in his heart for the other. I mean, this is what we talked about last week a little bit in understanding the older brother and the younger brother. But we're also supposed to see ourselves in this parable when Jesus holds up a mirror. He says, look what you are like, but also understand who the father is in the story. Jesus wants them to see themselves and also the great love of God. Now, readers today miss much of how harsh the statement is that the younger son says to his dad when he asks for his inheritance. I mean, we think it's kind of normal because we watch reality TV. Right? And you see things like, you know, Sons of Hollywood and all these people's kids living off their money doing just crazy stupid things all the time. I mean, think of like Paris Hilton, right? Paris Hilton would never be famous in any other age other than she has all kinds of money from her parents and she's on the internet. It's like that, boom, stardom. How weird are we? I mean, that's just crazy stuff. And what you see is money breeds idiots. And lack of money breeds idiots. And we're all just a bunch of idiots. I mean, that's really kind of the, the story. In an oriental setting, when his son made this request, he's asking his dad to die. Like when you were a kid and you said to your parents, I hate you, I wish you were dead. But you actually meant it, right? This shock is, is lost on people today because every teenager is like a, a crazy nut job today. The dad would think, my son wants me dead. The original hearers would think this when they heard that. And they would think, this younger brother, there's something wrong with this kid. But you have to look at the older brother as well, because they both have a distorted view of their father. The younger son wants him dead, while the older son serves like a slave, expecting to get some great rewards someday. They both only see the father as somebody who pays a wage, but has no generosity and no grace. That's their view of the father. And throughout this parable, Jesus is going to change that view of God. And a lot of times when you look at these kids, their view resembles our view of God. 
all the time. Because we always want to keep God at a distance. We want to invite God into our story so we can do whatever we want and God's just kind of a bit player in it. Oh, yeah, I have God. Oh, I have God. God's a part. Oh, I have. And we go and do whatever we want and say, oh, I, I have God over here. That's not how it works. This is God's story. Our lives are God's. This is God's story. He invites us into his story. And when you're in his story, everything in your life begins to change. But we constantly try and hold him off like this and say, no, 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 stay over there. And we know that's how we treat him because when something comes into our lives that we don't like, we say, well, why didn't I get this? And why didn't you protect that? And God, why didn't you do this? And why did you let this happen? What we want in our lives is we want all of our inheritance. We want heaven now, but we don't want the relationship that goes along with it. And the parable shows that these people, these sons, are around in every audience that ever hears this story. Now, Kenneth Bailey writes about how rare and unheard of it is for a son to do this in his book, Poet and Peasant. And he talks about how always 25 years in the Middle East, he only ever heard of one son doing this. That's how rude and rare it was. And the son goes to his dad and he says, I want my inheritance now. Three months later, that father died. When Kenneth Bailey was, was interviewing the mom, she said, oh, he didn't die three months later. He died the day our son asked for his inheritance. That is how strong this is. And again, typically everybody looks at the younger brother and the father, but the older brother is lost as well. I mean, how, how do you think a good older brother should have responded when his son asked his dad to die? He had a talk with that. That's right. And how do brothers talk? With the fist. That's what brothers do. My brother's in first service. My brother used to pay me a quarter to go in the backyard and box with him. And I'd go back there. I'd boom, hit in the face. I'd run in the house. I, he owes me like $2. And somebody gave me 50 cents just to stop talking about him so much. But, but he's big. I can't take him on. So what I start to like hide in the closet. He'd jump out. Woo! Bam, bam, bam! And I'd run away. I'd, I'd do crazy things with his friends. Oh, hey, look at that. Boom! And I'd punch him and I'd run away. It's the only thing you can do. But that's what brothers do. They, they fight. Like all these threats. You're going to be sorry. But Jesus says, and he, and he divided his property between them, between both brothers. That means the older one took his share just like the younger one. Where the younger one asks for it, the older one remains silent. He does nothing. Like a lot of guys today. We talk all big, but when it comes to doing the right thing, we're cowards. And we let evil triumph. I mean, the older brother, if he was living like the father, should have not just punched his brother, but stepped into the situation and started to try and bring about reconciliation. That's actually part of his job. He has a responsibility to kind of mediate this conflict. But he doesn't. Nobody in the story really does that. Instead, the older brother also, and gladly probably, takes his share of the inheritance with just twice as much as the younger brother. His silence communicates a clear message to the original audience that he sees his dad just like the younger brother does. And can I just point this out again? That this is so us. We constantly ask God for more and more and more and more and give me this and and give me that. It's kind of like you go to the Oriental restaurant and there's like the Buddha and you go, oh, money, 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 and you rub the belly. No, you don't. So, boy, this illustration's falling flat. Okay. It's like you walk up and, and like a cross, and people, Christians are always like, oh, bless me, bless me, bless me. We're always thinking, oh, God's got to bless me. Oh, God, give me this. Oh, God. And we're always like thinking this is, this is all it's all about, and we totally miss the point. I mean, the story really shows us, us, God calls us to be an ambassador to the world. It's not all trying to get things for ourselves. It's living the gospel in front of everybody we come into contact with. The story shows us, us. Now, to make this even more weird and convoluted, I'm going to give you a little more background. Uh, in Jewish law, the father was supposed to make a will before his death. So this father probably wasn't that old yet. 
but he starts to make a will based upon the instigation of his youngest son. But the sons could not take possession of the property until the father's death. Okay, So not until the father died. It's all about protecting the father. The father could live off the income of the estate even though it was technically the son's all the way until he died. Now, the sons could sell the property that was divided between them, but whoever bought it couldn't take possession until the father died. The son would have the right to ownership, but nobody could take possession until the father died. It's all about the fa- I know, this is like a, like, an, like a title and escrow nightmare, right? Just like, oh my, you ever bought a house? This is like a nightmare on how this would work. Uh, the father could actually sell the land, but only for the limited time while he was alive. So if you said, oh, that's a great piece of land, I'm going to buy it, but I can only have it while this guy's alive, ooh, Ooh, I mean, that's like, we call that betting on futures today. Like, if you bought oil stock like a year ago, you are screwed right now, okay? I mean, it's, sorry. Um, I just say things. I'm sorry. Whatever. Okay, so, so, where was I? Okay, so if the father had already divided the estate and sold his land, it would only be a lease and, until he died. Uh, the buyer could only have it as long as the father was alive. So there's, the sons could sell all again with, with those same restrictions, all dependent on the death of the father. Are you following with me? Okay, this is why when the son says, I want my inheritance, this is why it's like my son wants me to die. Because all these things depended upon the death of the father. So you see, the younger son is able to realize his portion before his father dies. Meaning that he or the father had to sell that portion of the estate at a huge loss because the buyer is going to have to wait for it. So the people hearing this story realize that the younger son is taking a third of his family's wealth, he's selling it at a low price, and then running away from his family's heritage. And heritage is a big deal. Who you are, where you come from, it's your family. This is heritage, heritage. And what you see is the father in this story allows these two sons to take advantage of their inheritance, gives them all of the goodness and the blessing of who he is before his death or their death. Hmm, sounds familiar a little bit. Uh, the father's probably in good health. He's victimized by these two sons who he loves. His heart is broken, but he continues to love and give them guidance and call them and lead them. That's his character. That's his character. The two boys also possess a certain freedom of their own where they make their own choices, but both are also lost to the father. Okay? Because the one runs away, one stays at home, and one in silent, but it's all about character. So verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. So the younger son goes, he wastes all of his money like teenagers do. He bought cars and beers and nachos and slurpees and lap dances and lotto tickets and rounds for all of his friends. Son runs from all of his responsibility like we all run from God. Eventually he runs out of money because the government in Rome was not about to pay these young people to give them, you know, votes, unlike some countries today. Uh, and, And hunger becomes this very good motivator in his life. In America, we think nobody should ever go hungry. I disagree. I totally disagree. I think this kid should have gone hungry. In Proverbs 16.26, it says the laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. Sometimes hunger will make people work. You're skinny and your pants are falling off. A cheeseburger sounds really, really good. I got a bunch of stories about people, but I'm just going to give you two. Okay? One, I know a guy who lived at home with his mom into his 40s, not because he didn't have a decent job, not be, but because he just wanted his mommy to take care of him and, and wash his clothes. Kick that dude out. 
I've got a, I got a friend named Luke. Luke uh, goes over to Ireland, and he is blown away that all these kids there mooch off their parents and live at home until their mid-30s so they can go clubbing every single night. Parents, kick them, them out. They will get hungry, and they will learn to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. I think starvation for some people can be biblical. I think it really can. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you get free stuff. And there are legitimate needs that we are supposed to help with and step into. But I think there's more than way too many lazy young men who sit around and don't do anything and they need to work. The younger son, what he does, he relies on a foreigner for food, does a job that is so disgusting, no Jew would ever do it, feeding unclean pigs. It'd be like asking a teenager to go out and pick broccoli today. Just, it is unheard of. It would not happen. You know, right, okay. But what happens when he goes out and he gets hungry and he starts to work, you know what happens? He starts to come to his senses. The working is something that is good for him. Working is something that God designed us to do. It's a good thing. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, came, like, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. When he is having this horrible time, where does his thoughts go? His father. His father. Why? Because of his dad's character. I'll arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And, the, and he arose and came to his father. Again, why? Because he understands and knows the heart of his father. He makes a decision, I'm going to go back to my dad, because he begins to see his need. He becomes willing to do what it takes to make this right. He thinks that means, I'm going to go work it off. I'm going to go fix this, which he can't do. The father's the one that's going to change this attitude in his mind, though. He says, I will arise and go, go to my father, which is the implied word is back to my father. He thinks he's going to have to pay everything back, but the father's going to welcome him in this. The father pays for him to bring him back home. But this is the beginnings of what is called repentance. And repentance is a beautiful word. In Jesus' teaching the word repentance, it means to return. All Jewish theology centers around this idea of return. It's the Hebrew word teshuva, teshuva. And it means to return who God, God created you and I to be, to live as the people that he made us to be, the people God is making us into. It is huge to the Jewish faith. We are restored by God in the understanding that he has called us as a people into repentance. And when that happens, we begin to live in God's peace. We bring God's peace to the world, his shalom. God has called his people. God has paved a way home. And true repentance from sin is when we turn away from it and actually live for him in the life that he calls us to live. I mean, I don't think this son understands it. He may not even like it. He doesn't comprehend his dad's love because he still views him as an employer. But the father is the one who's going to change all of this. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, and the son said to him, and I'm sure he's been rehearsing the I'm sorry speech all the way home. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And dad's like, yeah, yeah, shut up. Okay, I got it. You know, because this is a story about the father. That's who the story's about. He sees his son. He runs to his son. He doesn't make him grovel. The younger son is trying to, you know, make a deal with his dad like an employer, but the father won't have any of it. He has none of it. He restores him without condition. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is all through Luke chapter 15. You know, the lost coin, the lost sheep, it's about celebration here. It's about joy, joy, joy. 
the son cannot bargain. He can only accept what the father has done. The son is a full member of the household restored by the father's love and the father's compassion. The broken relationship is healed because of the father who does not allow his son to become a servant or a slave who receives wages. He receives him as a son. That's the character of the father. The people hearing this story are probably like, that's an amazing father. Is he a nutter? Because this just really, no dad would actually do this stuff. Now, quickly, I'll look at the older son, because we just talked about him last week, but verse 25. Now, the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So the older brother refuses to join the celebration. He doesn't understand his father's joy at the return of his younger brother. He's probably really irritated because he served so faithfully out in the fields, and his brother deserves nothing. Why? Because he views his father as someone who pays a wage, just like the younger brother. They both see their father the exact same way. But the father, again, changes this. The father is the one who goes out to him. The father sought him. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the older brother doesn't understand his father's love. You know, he does not accept his brother as his brother. All he is, is he's quick to accuse. He doesn't even know what has happened. He hasn't even been in the house yet. He's just making accusations. I, some Christians, we view deathbed conversions just a little bit wrong. Because it's like, man, if I live for Jesus for 50 years, how come they live for like 10 seconds for him and they get the same reward as I do? What's up with that? That's because we view it as our work and God's given us something for our work. It's not about our work. It's about what he has done. It is his call. He's the father. It is about the father. See, the older brother sounds a lot like us a lot of the time. The father goes out to this brother because he knows that he is lost as well. Verse 31, he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Why does he say that? Because it's true. The rest of the inheritance is this kid's. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, a lot of commentators, they focus on the younger son, even our title. But the older brother is lost as well. And the story, as I said last week, it doesn't even conclude. Right there, it's left purposely open-ended. What happened? Did the older brother go in the party? Well, we don't know. Did the younger brother you know, get his stuff back and then decide to go be a nut job again? We don't know. What, what happens? Did they both ever come to know the father's compassion and love? We don't know. See, this is Hebrew storytelling at its finest. This is amazing. And if it's about the brothers, this parable makes no sense at all. But if this parable is about the father and his unceasing, and his enduring love, that it makes all the sense in the world because it is showing us the Father. Hebrew storytelling goes like this. Beginning, middle, beginning. That's how it goes. Look at the story of the Bible. Starts in the garden, you know, relationship with God. It is good. What happens in the middle? Us. Sin and mayhem and catastrophe. It's just horrible. You know, and you get to the last couple chapters of the Bible, and what do you get to? Restoration, a garden that is, goes into a city, and people get to live in a relationship with God, and, and, and it's amazing. It is beginning, middle, beginning. This story is the exact same way. It's the gospel encapsulated. It is beginning, middle, beginning. It is, there's a father, and he's got two boneheaded kids. And in the middle, it's just mayhem and chaos that the kids cause. And you get to the end, and it's a father, and it's two knuckleheaded kids. I mean, it's, it's really a beautiful story. 
And Jesus places a mirror in front of all these people and says, do you understand who you are? Do you understand who the Father is? You know, will you be someone who lives in the Father's love and demonstrates that similar compassion to those around you? If you are running and you're tired of it, will you come home to your Father? If you have been home and you're just, you know, jealous of everybody else, you can't believe that Jesus loves and accepts sinners, will you get over that and demonstrate the joy that you're supposed to live within? I mean, is your life going to be lived in humility so you can actually live in the grace of God, the restoration that he has offered? I mean, Jesus is teaching all about God's grace. What is God like? He's full of grace and compassion. That's what he is like. And his kids run off and they do stupid, terrible things. They wrong themselves and they wrong others. But God's love is not limited. And his grace is offered to both of these kids. I mean, do you understand the depth of this? That you don't earn God's acceptance? You have it? I mean, this, this, is, this is a huge deal. Because we always say things like, oh, I accepted Jesus. No, Jesus accepted you. Okay? That's what it's like. And when you understand Jesus' love and grace for you, our lives become surrendered to him in everything that we do. It changes all of us. And the Father's love in the story is in reality a challenge that we begin to live and love like that Father. Because the message of the Father to his lost sons is clear. Don't be ashamed to live in the grace of your Father. To understand it and let your entire life be changed. Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unable to do anything about our condition, about who we are and where we were going, where we're helpless, whether we're far away or near at home and very bitter, while we were unaware of just how bad the situation was and is, Jesus died. Jesus died. When he died on the cross, he died for all of our sins, everything that separates us from God and us from each other. And the understanding of this reality, this forgiveness, this reconciliation is true for everybody who trusts Jesus. And this reality isn't something we make true for ourselves by doing something. It already is true. Our choice is do we live in the new reality or try to cling to a crazy reality of our own making? I mean, when we live God's vision for who we are, we're living as God made us to be. A few years ago, uh, some friends of mine and I were eating dinner at Applebee's, eating good in the neighborhood, right? I I think that's how it goes. Um, It was after a Good Friday service. And so we're all sitting around because Good Friday works up an appetite, right? Uh, and we're all sitting around, and we finish our meal, and the waitress walks over, and she brings us our check, and then she walks away with it, and then comes back again and brings it back, and she placed it in front of us, and she said, she said, you know, somebody in the restaurant paid your bill. You know, you're all set. And I'm sitting there going, what? What, what do I do? I mean, I got, my, John, the guy that's playing bass this morning, was, was with us. Uh, and and I, I was talking to him about this morning, and I go, what would you think? And he's all like, ah, he goes, I don't know. My first thought was, I should have ate more. <laughs> I should have had that extra beer. I don't, you know, I don't know something. I, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know what I really felt like when somebody does that? You feel helpless. You feel helpless because there's nothing you can do. You just, you're just sitting there. Everything's been taken care of. To insist on trying to pay that bill is pointless. It's totally pointless. All you can do is trust you know, that what the waitress said was true was actually true and live in that, which meant I got to get up and I got to leave the restaurant. My acceptance of what she said gave me a choice to live like it was true or try to create my own reality on my own mind where the bill was not paid, which would have just been stupid. And yet so many times we run around and live our lives in this place where we keep trying to pay the bill. I mean, this is an understanding of the grace of the Father, Jesus' death and ultimate resurrection. This is why the gospel is encapsulated in this parable. 
You know, do we trust Jesus that we don't owe anything? And when you live in that and really understand that and not just make it about us, but actually about the, the Father, our lives become completely changed because he will cause love and gratitude to well up in us because we can't help but be humble in the midst of that, that he is the one who has saved us, that he is the one who has done everything, that he is the one who has paid the way home, that he is the one who has done all of these things. He is the Father who seeks his children and brings us home. I mean, the Father, the gospel, the gospel is meant to change our view of God. Because when you understand who he is, it changes all that we are, everything that we are. I mean, this is, this is why Element does what it does, is the gospel. Living in the reality of our sins being forgiven, the resurrected Lord, so we can come to life again living as children of our great and good God. And that should reinterpret everything about our lives. I mean, this is why we come to communion every week, because we try and refocus you guys on this. I mean, communion is about the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal God. It's, it's about the gospel. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It's a remembrance of his body and his blood that was broken and shed for us. So that we are people who get to come home, who get to live in the grace and the goodness of our Father who has called us and loved us and ran to us and wrapped His arms around us and said, come home, come home. And we are a people meant to live in the surrender of that. All of our lives, it should reinterpret everything we do and how we see everything. Lives surrendered to the great goodness of our God. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, if you are somebody who is near and bitter or far from home and just squandering everything, they'd love to pray with you. Uh, if you are somebody who's never really understood the grace and the goodness of who Jesus is, they would love to pray with you about that. Because it is about what he has done. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. Uh, we do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he has done uh, because he has been gracious in giving to us. There's some food in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat, meet some other people. And we do this because we intend for all of you guys at some point to be in relationships with each other, that you would have this thing called what's called gospel fluency that you would begin to live relationships centered around the gospel with each other. That doesn't mean every other word you say is Jesus and Jesus and praise God. It means that the gospel is the center of your relationships. The understanding of God as your father has changed everything in your life. So how you interact, how you gospel one another reflects the father. I mean, it reflects his goodness and his grace. Everything and how we interact with each other begins to change. Everything changes in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who he is. Guys, if I can encourage you in anything by the end of this series next week to allow your understanding of God to change so you see him as father and you would understand the great lengths he has gone to save us as his kids. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would still teach us more and more what it means to be children of yours. That you have not left us bitter. And you have not left us far away and destitute. But you've called us all home. 
that you are the one who seeks, that you are the one who finds, that you are the one who brings salvation. That it is not our own doing, it is yours. And that we would be a people who stop having so many self-righteous attitudes about what we've done or look how good we live or look how I've done this or that. But our entire lives would come back and center on the good news that you are a father who has sought your children. And that the humbleness that that brings would change us deep in the core of who we are as it is supposed to. That as you promise, you make us into these new creations. A new creation that's not only saved, but redeemed and given a purpose and a hope. Teach us to live as children who understand that we have been invited to the celebration and we take great joy in that. We thank you for all that you have done and continue to do for us. And we ask that in that we would bring you great glory as you have brought your children great joy. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.